Previously on Bad Heroes. While we put together your next mission, you may do whatever you like in the capital city. All of your accommodations will be covered. There are eyes and ears here, of course, but most of them work for me. You know, I didn't know much about Vire before I got here. I came to Vire because I can't go back home. I can't go back home because I've been exiled, disappointed everyone in my clan. Gideon quickly scribbles out something on the paper, and she folds it up and gives it to Danny. Please send this back to Silverscale. Welcome to the Library of Vire. How can I help you? Any any mention of a, a place called Silverscale? Tomir takes a deep breath there. Ashta, where his forest was. No, that's that's not right. That wood was not always part of fire. The wood, that's not accurate. I have so much on my mind. I have so many questions. The things of my past are not, they're not adding up. And I need to know the truth. You see Tassir, the queen's snake. And when he opens his mouth, you hear, I see you're halfway to the truth already. Good. Then I can make this brief. Read me that code there, next to the event. Gideon steals herself and says, Code 463. 463. Destroyed. To make way for the expansion of Vire. this third episode of the Vire Interlude, I am going to let the heroes do their own thing. Thing. I'm going to let the heroes do their... <laughs> I'm going to let the heroes do their own thing. And I am here today with Coolness. Hello. What's up, buddy? It's great, Dre. You know, it's like a, a day. <laughs> sort of a... I'm good at this. Sort of a standard Wednesday. Let's see if the two of us can carry 30 minutes of an episode. <laughs> Yeah, we got broad shoulders. We're on this. We got this. We're buff. We got this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so we are going to work on Tonrir and what he does during the interlude between the Forgotten Court and their next hunt. Uh, and we're also going to level him up. Hooray leveling. Yeah, two levels even. So after arriving back in Vire and debriefing with the queen, you three are largely left to your own devices. There is about a month that passes before the queen calls on you again. So that's quite a bit of time, and all your necessities and accommodations are covered. Queen Safira has invited you to enjoy all that the capital has to offer, and she has also forbidden you from leaving. So, Tonrir, how do you spend your time? I got a shovel and I'm digging under the wall to get out. That's uh, it's clearly <laughs> it's the objective. Um <laughs> We did the storming out of the castle to the library, too. We did, and that was the last time we checked in, which was the night of your arrival. We kind of did the first day back in Vire, which was super packed, and now you and I are going to kind of take on the next month. So Tonrir has been kind of working on that recovery after those rather jarring realizations that happened regarding his home, his forest. Yeah. And coming out of that stupor probably took at least three or four days before he was sauntering around town, maybe eating every once in a while and just trying to figure out 
how to get himself realigned with the task at hand, which he's really kind of lost sight on. What What is my quest, I guess, is the best nerdy way that I can describe it. But he's trying to figure out, what's next? Where do I go from here? I You've had a very bad 48 hours or so. Yeah. And so Tonrir has been just sauntering around the capital, and that's probably where we find him. About three or four days later, he sporadically sleeps up on rooftops or in trees, and his owl, Ruthuin, has just been finding mice in the alley to eat or taking food wherever Ruthuin can find it. So that is where we find ourselves currently. That's all very sad. You have... The ability to like buy food for yourself and rule the wind. But yeah, if you don't feel up to it and you're mostly sleeping on building tops and trees, then then yeah, that that's probably what that looks like. So for the first scene, you mentioned to me that you wanted to look up and meet with an old friend, somebody who also lived in the village of rule the Now, how do you think that you found out about this person? So my thought is that as he was sauntering around town. He managed to circle back around to the library. You know, this is day three or four. We'll say day four after Revelations. And he's trying to pull himself out of that rut, jar himself out of that rut. So getting back to the library, perhaps, and just looking up what he can without going into the bottom basement of despair and horrible things. He's going to spend some time in the library and just see what he can find. So if you went to the top floor where you will find mortal records and you look up Rulthuin, what you find is the name Silen. Silen of Rulthuin is how he is listed. And this is someone that you know. This is someone that you knew as a child and someone that you knew growing up. And you may be surprised to find that he is here in Vire. And you are able to find out that he is actually employed at the Royal Preserve. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So do you send word to him and agree to meet or do you just go find him in person? I think it's just going to be a matter of going and finding him in person because I don't think Tanner has quite grasped that there are a lot of things at his disposal. Mm-hmm. He's used to being self-sufficient out in the wild. So he's probably just going to find out where the preserve is. And I think just the case that there is a preserve to begin with probably piqued his interest, you know, notwithstanding also seeing that Silent is there. Okay. So, you know, I think if you have found that there is a preserve, then you go there and it is on the east side of town and it is It is huge. The preserve is almost like its own small city. And you pass under a gold arch on your way in, which reads, The Royal Preserve, commissioned by Queen Aurelia of the House of Fane, first of her line, hellbringer and founder of the Unholy Empire, so that Vire may appreciate the wonders of the natural world. Hmm, okay. Now, when you go in, you learn that this enormous park is split into seven biomes. Tropical rainforest, temperate forest, desert, tundra, taiga, grasslands, and savanna. Now, where do you think you might find Silen? Given the, the common routes, 
I would go for the biome that most reflected the forest that we lived in. Okay, so that would be temperate forest. Mm -hmm. So if you go there, I think you head into the arboretum section, which is sort of like a collection of trees. And just walking through this and sort of seeing the scope of the preserve, you can quickly, actually, you know what? You don't quickly anything. Give me a nature check. Uh, 17. This collection is amazing. And not only is it amazing, it is very comprehensive. As you are walking through the Arboretum and you head into the temperate forest region, you are finding a lot of plants that are familiar, even plants that are rare. And you see a lot of druids at work here, druids of all different races tending to the plants. Tonrir is working his way toward the temperate forest, that part of the biome. And I think as he is approaching it, the first thing that he's probably going to notice, maybe even before he sees anything, is the scent. Mm -hmm. Scents are always tied with memories. It's like the, the strongest invocation of memories is scent. And if there are things that are familiar to that forest that he was in, that he smells, especially as he's approaching that, it's going to be a wave of memories again, but it's not going to be in a negative context. It's mm -hmm. kind of like going back to a, like a different version of home in that sense, because where there's gaps in what isn't there as part of the actual forest, it's being filled in by these memories that are being triggered by this sense and he's working his way through there in awe. That's gotta be like, you know, smelling the spaghetti recipe that your mom used to make. Right. It's very visceral and almost helplessly cozy. It is so familiar to you, this place and these smells. And I think as you head deeper in, you follow this mossy cobblestone pathway that winds through the cultivated forest. And it's cultivated in much the same way that your home was. It is wild, it really is, but you can tell that it is wild and cared for. And you can see that that is being done by druids that are all over. And you know they're wearing druidic robes that have the crest of the House of Fane, and you can tell that they are employed by this preserve. And you head deeper in, and you are surrounded by this thick canopy that casts dappled gold and green light on the ground. And you can hear birdsong drift through the natural arches that line this path, which are overgrown with leaves and vines. And I think you head along this path for a while before you spot Silen. Silen has long blonde hair and faintly green skin, and he is wearing druidic robes like everyone else. And there is a living gnarled tree, which he is communicating with who you also know. That is his familiar. And that tree was a good foot shorter last time you saw them. And Silen and his familiar are tending to the trees that are flanking a wooden statue of a robed figure. The figure has one hand outstretched in a shaft of sunlight, cupping a seedling in its palm, and is wearing a circlet of green vines. And around you see a bench, and there are several people passing through that are clearly visitors and not employees, and, uh... That's where you see Silen, and he's facing away from you, tending to a tree. Uh, a tree, actually, that you might have even seen at home. Mm. Okay. Tonrir is just in that state of speechlessness. When you come upon something that is 
just something that you are familiar with, but is still awe-striking. And as he does so, Ruthwain, his owl, is probably going to go perch on a nearby tree. And as Tarmir is looking around and he sees Silen there, he's going to approach and then see his see his familiar. And he's going to pause and stand just a bit, like maybe 10 feet away, to see if Silent notices. This is a link to your home. This is sort of your culture. What would be a name that his familiar might have? Any familiar within that culture is joined from two things. The inspiration that was drawn to create or associate with the familiar, and then where the familiar was born or found. Mm. So I could try to wing one real quick. Yeah. Characters that are sort of in your history, you have ownership over them. So I want to give you opportunities when I can to to exercise that. So that's where in this culture within this forest, it was important to note the inspiration and the place where that inspiration happened. Because for us, that is a seed. All things must have a start and branch out from there. So that's why it's named that way. So the naming convention is, first part, the inspiration for the beginning of the relationship and then the location that the relationship with that familiar began. Correct. I like that. Cool. I'm trying to think if your woods were Silen's only home. And I don't think that's true. I think Silen had lived somewhere else before and maybe brought his familiar from there and made a home in your original woods and in your village, Rulthuin. So the the name for the familiar would be Toth Reknorul. I'll type it out real quick because I know that's going to be. Uh, uh, Toth Reknorul. There you go. That's it. Okay. All right. So Toth Reknorul sees you and is a treant. So he, he is currently, or if it's a tree, it's probably not a specifically male tree. It's probably. So they, they are. Yeah. Yes, they they are, this tree, they are directing two other trees, as treants are able to do, speaking to two other trees and encouraging them to rearrange themselves for better sunlight. And this tree is in the middle of communicating with other trees and turns and looks at you and just raises one long sort of wooden gnarled finger and points at you. Silen turns to face you and just breaks into this huge smile. And I think before you can even do anything, he is like walking straight towards you to embrace you, to give you a big hug. Yep. Which honestly, <laughs> Tonrid needs that right now. <laughs> so that's going to be well taken. Absolutely well taken. Tonrid needs a hug. <laughs> he pulls back and he sort of like grips you by the shoulders. And I, he is a full off. So he is taller than you. So he looks down at you a little bit. But there is so much fondness and tenderness in the way that he is looking at you. And he says, Thonrir. So that sounds so old. He aged so much in that moment. Hold on. <laughs> let me, hold on. Let me turn it back from mummy back to sort of middle-aged elf. <clears throat> Thonrir, it's been a long time. Come, let me look at you. Let me look at you. And, you know, sort of starts looking you over very fondly and and um, sort of, you know, giving your shoulders a squeeze and says, You've grown, not in stature, in intellect, in mind, I can tell. I am so happy to see you again. 
Tom Mayer at this point will probably, I think he was still wearing his head, so he pulls that back fully to show respect, but says the seeds that have cast me about the world have allowed me to root new things, and I only hope that I can grow as well as you have and everything that you've grown here. It's it's amazing. It is, isn't it? It is quite the comprehensive collection you'll find. Trees even that are challenging to grow. We are not limited in resources or staff. We care for everything. It it truly is a paradise. I am so happy you are here to see it. Though, and he looks you over for a minute and says, something tells me this is not strictly a social call. At that point, Tom Rear will lift up his wrist where he has his bracelet to show it to him. And Tom Rear says, not particularly, although I do hope to spend more time here just to, just to even catch up, just to, just to learn what's, what's happened, what made you come here. And, but you are right. There are many things that I am trying to take care of and many more that just happened within these last few days. I'm in the employ of the queen. He looks at you for a while and he can see from your expression that you are not thrilled about that. And he slowly points to the symbol of the House of Fane on his robes. And he says, you will find no judgment here. There is no right or wrong way to survive. Such is the fate of a fallen people. We all cope whatever way we can and find a meaning on our own paths. If this is your path, Tonra, then I would be honored to help you however I can. We are still brothers beneath the same sun and moon, the same stars. We walk side by side towards the same goal, where the natural world is treated with respect. Come, let me show you. Tonrir is just going to simply nod at everything that he's saying, and he's just going to follow him. He shows you around. I think that you guys walk around for maybe even the better part of a day. He shows you just so many things that you are familiar with, things that you have not seen since you left home. As they're walking around, Silent's probably going to notice Rothawin keeping up <laughs> wherever they're going. At some point, Rothawin's probably going to perch on a branch that's above the path that they're walking, and Tonrir is going to look at Rothawin and say, mm, I should probably introduce the two of you. Yes, please. Who is your friend? And I think he, he does sort of a small bow. As he does the small bow, Rothawin will spread and shake his wings, and Tonrir will gesture to him and say, Silen, meet Rothawin. Pleasure. And I think then he introduces Rulthuin to his familiar, whose name I cannot say and will not introduce <laughs> by name. <laughs> but he introduces them and his familiar is actually coming around with you guys rather slowly, of course, because he's a large tree or they are a large tree. Mm -hmm. I think that you guys spend quite a bit of time walking around in this preserve and it probably feels more familiar than anything has in a very long time. I think what will happen is once the introduction is made, Ruthoin will go to perch on one of 
Tothrak Noros branches. Oh. And they'll just kind of follow Silen and Tonre around. Okay. I like that. That's really good. Okay. So your familiars are spending time together as you spend time with this person that you know and probably have missed. And is there anything else that you want to talk about with him before you part? You know, is there anything that you want to ask about? Yeah. I mean, Tonre is being shown all these wonderful things. And as they're walking along, perhaps in a just a quiet moment, the question will eventually bubble to the surface for Tonrir, and he'll look over to Silen and say, Silen, how many got out? I think as you ask this, you are in the area that is between the temperate forest biome and the rainforest biome. You can hear a lot of insects and a lot of birds, and you can hear them especially loud in the silence that follows that question. And I think eventually he stops and he sits down on a log. Do you join him? Yes. He closes his eyes and he puts his chin on his hands and he says, not many, not many, not many at all. Tonrir just nods. He's probably, if Silence just gazing toward the ground, Tonrir's probably followed his gaze just to kind of look in the same place in contemplation and kind of digest that kind of, I need to stop saying kind of, um, <laughs> starts digesting that this is what it is truly. You guys are watching this mossy, very lush area, and there are some birds, and I think you guys watch some birds for a little while, and it's very peaceful, except for, of course, the way that you're feeling. And eventually he says, I, I don't know if you've been back. It, it is a changed place, our home. I don't think you'd like it, honestly. There's a trading post there now. Prosperous, of course, and an inn. They call it Ashterwood, because they do not know the old names or speak the forest's tongue. People visit, and they enjoy the field of flowers and the young growth. They don't know, of course, that the forest was once quite ancient and mysterious, ripe with the old magics and with great creatures. It is changed. Hellfire will do that. Delicate things can't grow there anymore. It's all dandelions and the like pretty weeds. But people don't know the difference. It's more palatable to humans this way, I think. But not to elves, not to us. Tonrir perks an eyebrow and says, Hellfire. Yes, I, I think that is what was used. The way that it will not grow back. It is not natural fire that was used. Of that, I am sure. It makes sense because... For some time after it happened, I wandered around the woods, and in all of the ash, I did not see any signs of reprising growth where there should have been. You know, there's plenty of fires that have happened because the, the lightning from the heavens strikes the ground where it is dry, and nature runs its course, but it always grows back, especially with what we did there. It always came back so quickly. 
But I walked and I walked and I found no sign of life until, and he points up toward uh, Rothwin, who's perched on a nearby branch, till I found him. If it's just weeds and dandelions and trade, there's got to be a way to, to at least bring some of it back somehow. Now, there is an object that you have mentioned that Tonwir is interested in. Does he know about this object or is he learning about it right now? He's learning about it. He's probably heard it in whispers and I'll be intent on bringing it up in a second. Yeah, I I, I don't think he has much to say. I mean, I, I, I think that this is, this is a shared heartache. This is a shared trauma. And I think you can intuit that if he had known a way to fix it, he probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Tonrir continues kind of staring at the ground and then he chuckles for a second and he says, There was this once before I was sent off to learn how to and pass the trial on how to shape wood. I was learning how to do it. And Tornud had been making fun of me earlier that week. I remember it was a couple of days earlier. I was... I was flirting with someone, I can't remember who it was, but Tornod had been had been making some fun of, of me about that and oh, what was that? Oh, that's right. I I pulled at his breeches a little bit and caused him to mildly trip, and as he turned around <laughs> to give chase, I touched a tree and I bonked him in the head with wood shaping that I had done just as I had rounded the corner, and it was probably the most hilarious thing. You remember Remember they they called him uh, they called him Plankhead for a, a couple of weeks if I remember that correctly. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was good. Uh, he did he he took it in stride, of course. But that was just uh, man. There was so much, so much yes. there. Yes, yes, and they called you Pants Grabber. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh God. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, that was. Uh, Lots of jokes of him running into wood and lots of jokes of you grabbing wood. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Of uh, which, of course, <laughs> that interested some circles, but God, <laughs> that was some, <laughs> that was some, was some good things to be had. You know, it's, <sighs> I hold on to those despite what happened. I hold on to those because it was important. And, but, you know, the, th- the thing that I was reminded of most in some other some other moment, Tornod had been talking about something that would have just drastically increased the the rate of growth for things. Uh, this, this uh, I barely remember hearing about it, but it's just been eating at the back of my mind for some time. And Tornod was the one that was researching it, or maybe he was trying to figure out how it was going to be used. Silen brings his hands up to his chin in a prayer position and taps them against his chin thoughtfully. And eventually he says, softly, The Erdernethal. That's what you're thinking of. The Erdernethal. It is a relic, a talisman, and it is real. He was learning about it from me. From you? Some travelers pass through on the path, and Silen waits 
for them to leave earshot. And then he says, yes, yes, it is a myth, but one I believe is true. It is a talisman that allows druids increased strength, especially in the arena of helping things recover and grow. I can see why you would be interested in it now. But, even if you could find it, there is something important that you must know about it. To use it, to use it at all, you must be so powerful, Todmir. Much more powerful than I. More powerful than you. That's a tall order, friend. I am not so powerful, Tonmer. You flatter me. I think he looks at you and smiles and he says, Tonmer, I have known you since you were a sapling, just a babe at Senny's knee, and you have never been ordinary. It would take great power to wield the Erder Nathal, but if anyone can grow into it, it's you. Tonrir is silent at that, and at the mention of Senny, you know, there's some welling in his eyes. Just at the, at both the compliment and the the assessment that was just bestowed upon him by somebody that he looked up to, and we'll make this a druid moment. You ready for this? I'm ready. Hit me. A tear drops off into the green below, causing it to react and grow just a little bit. I like that. Tonrir takes a very deep breath, kind of claps him on the shoulder, and he says, Silent, I've always looked up to you. You've taught me some of the things that I know now, and there are many things yet I'm sure I still have to learn, but this artifact, if I'm going to find it and learn how to utilize it, I need, I, I don't know where to start. Tonrir, your heart is as it has always been, in the right place. Tender beneath all that bark. If you start by getting stronger, if you care for yourself, that is the first step, and I think everything else will fall into place. In order for animals to take roost, first the tree must grow. I'm going to roll insight for Silen real quick. Oh boy, that's a good roll. Okay. Now, in your culture, in your home, are people touchy or no touchy? What's the touch level? Fairly touchy. Like, friends are known for holding hands while walking around. Okay. Hugs, contact, all of that stuff is almost expected. Okay. Then I think he, I think he very gently cups your face. And he examines you carefully. Very tenderly, very kindly, he examines your face. And I think what he probably finds there is a lot of pain. He smiles at you very gently and he says, Tonmer, try not to forsake all that is gentle. Try not to be alone all the time. One tree does not make a forest. Thank you, friend. Those words were exactly what I needed to hear. So, that is a scene that I think sort of sets your intent for the rest of that month, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just talk a little bit about 
how you learn what you learn in this next month, what you focus on and how you sort of grow your skill and where you do it. Mm -hmm. So as Tonrer utilizes that as the springboard uh, to become better, obviously, his inspiration will largely go into learning how to, uh, I don't want to say manipulate, but utilize plant life and help it grow. So he's going to be looking in things that will not only allow him to help with the growth, but of course, how it can help him as well, whether it's in combat or otherwise. He's also going to be naturally influenced by Ruthuin, his owl, and also realize that no forest is complete without its beasts. And he's going to study a little bit in how to tap into that animal domain. Okay. Yeah. So, so you spend most of your time working on nurturing plant life and then to some extent communing and nurturing animals as well. And you know that there are classes taught at the library and you know that they are free. You also know that Silen is extremely practiced when it comes to nurturing plant life. Who do you want to learn from? So I think what will happen is, as before, Tonru will go to Silen for the North Star to follow. He absolutely makes time for that. He is, as you knew him before, he is very nurturing. And that was probably how many of the older elves were in your home, is that it was very much like it takes a village. And so now that he has seen that you are here, he is absolutely invested in your growth, just like he would be if you were his kid. And I think that he is more than happy to make time for you, even when he is tired. So yeah, I think that you spend a good bit of time in the preserve, maybe even sort of helping him. And he uses that to teach you how to commune with plant life a little better and how to really nurture it. Give me like a little super short thing that you guys might do in that preserve. An exercise in cultivating plant life in a circle and then becoming the plant that is in the middle of the circle. Wait, sorry. Can you turn into plants now? <clears throat> yes. I have eee. one of the spells at level two is tree shape. And that uh, spell allows me to assume the form of a large living tree or a shrub or a large dead tree trunk with a small number of limbs. And that lasts for five hours. Okay. All right. It's kind of like a learning montage. So I completely envision that there are a couple attempts that go hilariously. Like you, you get like a stump for a leg and then you're just like, you guys just sort of look at each other and shrug because <laughs> you can't, you can't hack sort of the rest of the transformation. But of course, over time it does get better and you learn how to do that from Silen and also with the help of his familiar. I think that Silen also directs you to seek the tutelage of people at the library. If you are open to that, I don't know if you are. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You find the professors there. You know, it, it varies like everywhere, but largely to be very helpful. You work with a dwarven druid, and he helps you learn how to better communicate with animals. His familiar is a, like a hound, like a dog, mm -hmm. like a really cool dog. And I think you spend a lot of time with this dwarf and his dog learning how to communicate better with Rulthuin and really be in touch with his needs and his feelings and what he's thinking. So if there's any other montage stuff you want to do, let's do it now. And then we'll go into talking about how you actually level up mechanically. 
I think those are great examples, and I think that sets the tone pretty well. Okay, great. So we have laid out pretty well how you learned the things you learned and what your motivation is for learning the things you've learned, which is that Tonmer is interested in a particular talisman and has been told that even if he were to find it, in order to use it, he's going to have to be much more powerful than he is. So you're going from level three to level five between the Forgotten Court and the next hunt. And we can say that's a combination of experience from being in the Forgotten Court and also from all of this hard work that you're putting in in the break. Yep. Some of the skill points were applied to currently laid out skills. So he got another point in acrobatics. He kept on the skills that he had and was able to hone those a little bit. So okay. there's going to be a few that up a little bit, and then there's going to be some that up a lot just because of some of the modifiers that I learned how to apply because I wasn't doing it right the first time. <laughs> That's also on me. You know, there was a lot of whoopsies in everybody's character sheets the first time around and I didn't notice them. So that we'll, we'll just share the blame for that, you and I. Yeah. yeah. So being water touched, which was interesting, I think that was part of the plant life is being able to utilize elements fairly well. Mm, okay. So the element that you're sort of tuning into is water. Mm-hmm. Okay. That fits. That's like a very life-giving element as opposed to like fire, which he probably wouldn't touch. No, it's probably the exact opposite, <laughs> which is water. Sure. Um, that makes sense. Yep. Uh, beyond that, mostly it's just having gained some things as a druid moving into the fifth level because some things are attained at the fourth, which will be explored later. Okay. Real quick before you do your spells, tell me how your hit points went up and then also which of your primary stats you chose to boost. Yep. So my hit points have gone up from 29 to 38, which Ooh. was... Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my. Okay. For two levels, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. The stats that were upped, Wisdom came up. Uh, so that is now sitting at a 19. And I think everything else is staying the same. I mean, and that makes a lot of sense with what you're doing, right? You're spending mm -hmm. a lot of time with Silent, and what he's doing largely is passing Wisdom on to you. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yep. Yep. And I think everything else has stayed the same. Okay. Tell me about your cool new spells that you can do, because I'm sure that they're very cool, and I'm very excited <laughs> for them to play into the next arc. Yep. So as was just alluded to, there is some shape-shifting that's able to go on, the tree shape. So level three opens up some things, and that's great. There's going to be a lot of use of plant-based things, and I did that with some of the spells that I prepared today, like spike growth and mm -hmm. found out I can create a beanstalk, a climbing beanstalk, which is <laughs> actually pretty cool. Do you have to be outside or can you create a climbing beanstalk anywhere, like in a store? Oh God, that would be great, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> oh, climbing... you, oh, you can't reach the top shelf? I got you. Hang on. <laughs> All it says is that create a beanstalk that is very easy to climb and it's instantaneous. That, okay, everywhere. Beanstalks <laughs> everywhere. Okay, good, um, good, good. There will be some needs for, if we decide to go for it, there will be some needs for reagents for that. Um, so I think <laughs> one of the things that Tonra will walk away with from this is having a spellcaster pouch, which is kind of okay. common. Going into level three, being able to do like a burst of nettles. Mm. Making an animal bipedal, apparently. Uh, but there's, uh. some, uh, there's some cool things that came out of that. Yeah, what's that? Mm. Making an animal bite. Hello, dog. You now walk on two legs. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> but 
But, but, I don't but, ask. I don't ask. But, I just. But why? Okay. <laughs> but why uh, to do party tricks? Okay, got it. Yep. And then some other things like Thorny Entanglement, Summon Nature's Ally 3. I haven't really done this much yet, but I think it'll become a little bit more common. I can summon a third level creature of my choosing, or I can summon 1d3 uh, second level creatures or 1d4 plus one first level creatures. So if I wanted okay. to you know, summon up to five rabbits, man, imagine <laughs> okay. what I could pull out of a hat then. Not just oh one, God. but five. Literally five rabbits. Yep. Love it. Okay. I will also be able to take on the shape of vermin. You, you, you may become a vermin? I may become a vermin. Only vermin? Not only vermin, but that's vermin shape one is what is in that, okay. in there. So, oh, and water breathing. Ooh, that's very cool. Yep. For 10 hours. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Okay. That's good for me to know. Yep. I really look forward to meeting Mouse Tonrir. Yeah. We're going to be far away from all of the mouse traps. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe far away from Rolf the Wien as well, eh? I didn't think of that. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Oh, no, that would be the worst ending ever. You didn't feed your owl. You're a mouse now. Well, we had a lot of fun here today, guys. Uh, I'm glad you're all invested in Tonner. That's a wrap. Uh, he did get eaten by his own owl. Perfect. Oh, no. All right. So what else you got? Those are the big things. Um, okay, cool. You know, everything else is staying the same. But really, I think what we're all looking forward to is just seeing – how he's able to utilize plant life and shape-shifting uh, in the future and how he's going to go about learning that. I don't want to give too much away, but that's definitely going to be useful in this next arc. So I very much look forward to seeing how it gets used. Yep, me too. So I'm here today with just Liska. Liska, say hello. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? <laughs> so you have been invited by Queen Safira to enjoy all that the capital city of Vire has to offer. What does Iria do? So I think Iria spends a lot of time in a local like theater watching performances and kind of gaining the courage to do her own performance. And um, I think in between that, she spent some time visiting Danny and then also visiting Farah. I like that. Okay, so so you spend a lot of time sort of checking out the local theater and music scene. And what you find is that <laughs> Vyer is a cultural hub. And you get the impression that they have worked very hard to make that so. There are so many places to perform, and there are performances every night. And there are people not just from Vire, there are people from all over the world. The capital city of Vire has created a culture and a name around art, performative art like music and theater, where great performers want to come there to perform, and great critics live there. So this is a very, very rich scene for someone who is into the arts, especially someone who's into music. And there are a lot of places that basically do open mic. So how long into this sort of break do you think that Iria waits before she does her first big performance? Mm, after like 10 days or two weeks. 
Okay. So pretty quick. Like she just kind of like pokes around for a couple weeks and then is and then is ready. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. So there is just like a whole host of different venues that are open to performers. And it ranges from like the coffee shop on the corner to Carnegie Hall style giant amphitheaters. And Getting booked at one of the larger venues is, of course, more difficult. You have to, like, audition for it and stuff. But it is set up so that people who are strangers can perform. What size venue does Iria seek out? Well, I think Iria, she feels bigger than, like, a coffee shop. Um, She loves to hang out in coffee shops and, like, listen to other performers and chat with people like the regulars, get to know them. But I think she would prefer performing in, like, a... Not Carnegie Hall-esque, not Broadway, but like a local theater kind of venue. Okay, so I think you've visited a lot of different venues. You've seen a ton of different shows. What's Iria's like favorite kind of show to see, by the way? To see? Hmm. Do you like plays or do you like to listen to like poetry or, you know, stuff like you create? Or do you like to see very different types of art? I think she does like to go to like spoken word um, and music And also, like, interpretive dance. (laughs) She's, like, fascinated with that. Nice. I mean, there's no live music. It's just someone interpreting the music and dancing to it. So, yeah, she's very interested in that. Cool. Okay. So I think if you are interested in those things, if you like to listen to spoken word and maybe percussion like what you do and also interpretive dance, (laughs) there is actually an outdoor amphitheater that is very, very beautiful. It's in a park. It has a stage with rows of stone benches that go up in like a half circle slanting up the hill. Does that sound like a place Iria would want to perform? Oh, yeah. I think that would be her top pick because then it kind of reminds her of of home. And, you know, they would always be performing out around the campfire every night. So I think that would be really comfortable for her. That's perfect. So, So there's this outdoor amphitheater. It is surrounded by banners that have the crest of the House of Fane. It is a crisp autumn evening. And there are red and orange leaves twirling through the air. And the breeze has a very slight chill to it, which is like just enough to ensure that you are very awake, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. And I think this amphitheater is surrounded by a park and apple trees, which are flush with fruit because this is the season for them. I think it is a really, really beautiful scene. You are from the jungle. So you're used to kind of like heat and stickiness. Yeah. Dvire has like a more Mediterranean climate, so it's not really like that. It's actually really, really pleasant. Do you enjoy that or do you like miss the sticky? I think she enjoys that. Yeah, I think she she hadn't experienced it before, but it is a, a good change. Okay, yeah. So I I think you're getting ready. You're getting ready to perform. I think a couple people go before you and maybe you are like behind the amphitheater, behind a little grove of trees waiting with other performers for their turn. And there are like four people who go before you. And I think you take a peek and you see that the benches, the seating, it's full. It is, this is a well-attended event for sort of an open mic situation. How do you feel? I think Iria feels a little nervous, not about like performing itself, but about this particular performance because it's something new and it's something that she hasn't explored before. It's very personal for her. So I think she feels she feels very nervous, but also she doesn't know most of the people in the audience. So that's comfortable for her. Like 
the performance is very personal. There isn't anybody personal in the audience, but she's still a little nervous. Okay, so you you definitely didn't tell like Gideon or Tonrir about this. No, 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 no. Or Farah or Danny. I told Farah about it. I'm trying to think of how Farah would attend this because if it's only been like two weeks since you arrived, I think Farah really, really wants to come. But because it is so close to her returning to sort of civilization, she is worried that she won't be safe around so many humans. And she doesn't want to make a scene by trying to eat somebody in the (laughs) middle of your performance. So if you were comfortable with it, she invited you to practice in front of her before you performed. Do you think Yuri would have done that? I think she would have, yeah. I think she also invited Danny. I think she felt comfortable inviting both of them. And I think in her head, she was like, I mean, if Gideon and and Tonrir end up here, then so be it. But she doesn't think that they would be really into that. Yeah, I, I don't think that they, I don't think they know. You know, I don't think they know about it. So I don't think they're here. But Danny is. If you told Danny, she is definitely here. I think she came like super early, like <laughs> really, really early. So she could get like a seat in the front. And she has been like, she brought like, it's Danny. So like she brought like snacks. <laughs> she has like a backpack full of like carrots and stuff. She has like a water jug. She has been camping out there. Since long before everybody else, she is like, she she has like a cushion for her butt. <laughs> Danny has been camping out there. She is ready. Very cute. And I think as you peek around the trees to take a look at the crowd, you see Danny in the front row and she sees you too. And she gives you like a tiny little thumbs up from the other side of somebody who I think is doing an interpretive dance. <laughs> so I think that the people before you take their turns and they're very well received. These other performances are of varying skill levels, but in the very least, everybody claps politely. And it's your turn. What are you wearing? I think she's wearing pretty simple clothing. Nothing too gaudy, but very, I think, flowy. More flowy. Probably like a light purple shirt and darker pants. Okay, cool. I think as you walk out on the stage, there's that autumn breeze, right? And I think it billows through your light purple clothing, and it looks very, very cool. And as you walk out on the stage... Just like apropos of nothing, Danny like frantically claps and then like realizes that's inappropriate. So stops (laughs) and like sits on her hands and, and there you are, you are on this stage in front of, I think the biggest audience you've ever performed for. I think Iria kind of hones in on Danny and like gives her a little wink and a bow to have that like comfort right in front of her and isn't paying too much attention to the rest of the crowd while she gets ready to perform. As like one person claps totally out of time and then you like walk on stage billowing and you take a bow the audience like giggles right away there's like some laughter that ripples through for your good nature (laughs) and you stand in front of a bunch of faces cool yeah so uh iria is gonna do some spoken word okay take it away for love i would do anything You knew. For love, I was blind, seeking, reaching for any living soul to call my own. Lost connection to reason, seen, stripped of my senses, all I feel, all I taste, all I hear is you. And now you've gone. I pulled my heart out and squeezed my blood into your grail. I did not see. It was not mine to give. I had pledged devotion to the Clawstrike clan. My own heart was tethered, bound to its only home. Iria, breaker of oaths, 
I have broken more than I'll ever make, a stranger to this land. Surely no one so wicked could truly be kindred. I am now the ghost story told round the fire. Once, not long ago, there was a young kit. Her mind wandered off. She'd get lost in it. She always came back, knew which way was home, till she went too far, following a bow. Her heart was a flutter, her senses gone blind. One look from her lover made everything fine. Yet there was a darkness behind those green eyes. Our young Kit, a puppet, believed in the lies. She stole from her clan, betrayed an old friend, crept off in the night, never heard from again. The ghost of the tribe, I deny them their right, their connection, the strongest bond there is, the essence of Melos, robbed, Ramsay, the purest friend, I have deceived, for love, I would do anything, and you knew. Iria, breaker of oaths, I have broken more than I ever made, but what is torn, I will mend. Roll performance. Yeah, dice. That'd be good. <laughs> Am I doing this with my level three or level five? For this scene, use your old stats. 18 plus four. 22. <laughs> okay. You finish. And I think there is a pause. And then I think the clapping is deafening. And you can see Danny in the front seat just losing it. <laughs> completely losing it, just like clapping as loud as she possibly can. Danny's like making more noise than like 10 other creatures. <laughs> this is a very well-received performance, I think, because of its honesty and its raw emotion. I think you leave the stage to a lot of applause. How do you feel? I think Aria has like mixed emotions because like she said this performance out loud, but not to this many souls at one time. And I think... During the performance, she maybe had, like, a few tears coming down. So, like, at the end of the performance, she's very, like, sad. And it's a weird mix of feeling like she's very, very heavy, but also very relieved. And then she gets this, like, huge round of applause. And it's, like, a a very sobering moment for her where it's... um, It was probably cathartic, right? Very cathartic, yeah. So she's got this, like, very emotional, like, feel to her and she does a little like bow and yeah that's how she feels <laughs> okay yeah so you give him sort of a serious bow and the emotion of what you have just discussed rightfully so like weighs pretty heavily on you as you walk off the stage and i think you head back to where the performers are congregating after their performances the next performer like it's a halfling man and he's about to go after you and i think as he passes you he offers you a high five. Oh yeah uh Iria definitely returns the high five nice okay i think when you go in the back you know the other performers there's like a culture of positivity among performers and vire and the truth is it's because there there is room for everybody here like there are so many people who enjoy and love art here and so many ways to support art that like it's not really it is competitive in the sense that that artists want to grow but it is not cutthroat in any way Mm -hmm. it's a pretty positive culture so i think you come back to a lot of warm receptions from the other performers what do you do to kind of like decompress afterwards? 
she's spent some time in these venues just listening and watching different performances and she's gotten to know a few people. So I think she, she kind of picks out someone that she knows pretty well or has been getting to know over the last couple weeks and kind of goes up to them and decompresses with them. Okay. What do you think this person's like? Help me fill in the gap of this person. Mm. What kind of performer are they? I think they're one of the interpretive dancers. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I'm picturing somebody kind of like wiry, maybe an elven person. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. You go rendezvous with this tall, wiry elf that you know. They are wearing very elaborate kind of draping clothing to exaggerate their movements when they do their interpretive dance. Get this beautiful fade from like orange to red. Let's see, what is their name? What about Emery? E-M-E-R-Y. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so there they are. You know, I think that they greet you warmly. They give you like a big hug. They're very tall because they're an elf, of course. So it's like being hugged by a very tall, slender tree. (laughs) (laughs) They congratulate you for your first performance. And do you guys settle down back there to wait out the other performances? Yeah, I think so. I think we settle down and, and just chat. And I think Iria, now that she's done her performance, she's not as nervous anymore. And she has more capacity to like think of other things aside from her performance. So I think Iria asks Emery, hey, Emery, so I know there's a lot of, uh, seems like there's a lot of arts and, and performances here. And, and that's amazing. Um, do you know if there's any like art or culture that is is banned here in Fire? Uh, just just want to make sure that I'm not, you know, crossing any boundaries or stepping on toes. They say, great performance, Iria. That was really powerful. And they do like an interpretive dance thing where they put their arms over their head and like bring them dramatically to their heart to illustrate how powerful it was. And then they say, culture that is banned. Well, this isn't unique to art. But it is widely known that to speak ill of the crown or of hell would be... And they do like a dramatic motion of running their finger over their neck. Unwise. And then they change the subject. Mm -hmm. As you are doing this, as you're waiting, as you're sort of hanging out with Emery and just sort of just sort of chit-chatting about, you know, maybe the other performers and what's going on, you see somebody familiar who has supposedly left their seat and come back around the stage, you see an ethereally beautiful man with high-heeled boots and long black hair and feathered wings the color of ash. And it's Zira, one of the queen's demonic advisors. And as he approaches you, he is very softly, to not interrupt the other performer, clapping. Oh, well, I think Iria kind of breaks away from the conversation and turns her attention to Zira and, and gives like a nice warm smile. Emery sees Zira approach and kind of peels off and leaves you guys alone. Hello, Iria. Lovely poem. And he crooks his finger at you and invites you to take a walk. Okay, uh, Iria goes with. I think you guys walk through these apple trees sort of away from the venue so that you can speak at a normal volume. And <laughs> and Zira just like, he towers over you. You have seen him on the other side of the throne room up the stairs, but you have never seen him up close. 
And he is as intimidating as he is beautiful. He is extremely tall. He has sort of delicate features, but there is this, there is this feeling to him where you understand that despite his appearance, this demon is not a seducer. This demon is an executioner. Hmm. So when you look at him, <laughs> there is certainly an intimidation factor. When you walk, like, do you, do you talk to him or do you guys walk in silence for a little bit? Oh, yeah, I think, I think Aria talks a little bit. She's not one to be quiet very often, especially when it's awkward. <laughs> what, uh, what do you say to fill the space as you guys are sort of walking away? So, Zira, I, uh, I've never seen you so up close. You're much taller. Do you play basketball? he turns to you and he says I love the mortal arts truly mortals you all live such short pointless lives thank you (laughs) it's nothing personal even the elves with their seven eight hundred years they are here but for a blink of an eye in the grand scheme of things And the mere half-century that some of you get, it's a cruel joke, truly. To gift such sentience to a creature only to snuff out their existence so quickly. But you see that rush, that fleeting nature of your being, that is what makes mortal art exquisite. You hold nothing back, because there is no time to be coy. The emotion in mortal art, the raw feeling, there is nothing like it in the outer sphere. On the celestial plains or in the pit. And trust me, I've looked. It is only here on this mortal plane that art like this exists. Raw, powerful, and completely ignorant of its absurdity. I adore it. Poetry, music, theater, everything. And you, Iria. The feeling in that piece, the love, the betrayal, the guilt. It was so powerful. I have a proposition for you. Oh, gosh, Sira, I I don't know whether to feel grateful for your praise or offended, but thanks. What is this that you want to propose? Allow me to be your patron. I will introduce you to all the right people, get you into all the right places. You have talent, Iria. Let me help you hone it. And I think Zira reaches up to an apple tree that's next to you and pulls down an apple. And he tosses it to you. Iria puts it in her pocket so she can sell it later. Iria <laughs> <laughs> uh, catches it and kind of examines it and is considering like the shine of the apple and looks up to Zira and says, what, What's in it for you? As I've said, I enjoy the mortal arts. That's it? I want to see you perform, Iria, and I want to see you grow. And when you do grow, into an incredibly talented performer, into a household name, I want you to remember how you got there. Okay, I see, I see. Um... This, uh, is this going to be like a binding contract kind of thing? Like, are there going to be clauses and 
paragraphs that are so tiny print that I can't read them. And then two years later, I'm just going to have to be doing pop all the time. Like, (laughs) (laughs) he smiles and he laughs and he says, no contract. I do contracts at work all day. I don't do them in my off time. I would simply ask that if I call on you, if I need a favor, you consider answering. What kind of favors do you generally ask for? You don't have to worry. It's nothing sorted. I can take care of all of that myself. So why don't you go get the vampires? (laughs) I think he just smiles at you. He holds out his hand for the apple. Iria tosses it back. I think he watches you and he takes a big bite out of it. And you can see that his teeth are sharp. (laughs) And he's waiting for your answer. Sierra, how how long have you been in existence? Time in the celestial planes, time in the pit. Now time on the mortal plane devising Queen Sephira in the interests of hell. Altogether, Iria, a very, very long time. Have you supported any other artists? Yes, of course. I actually helped create this venue. It's a very nice venue. Tell you what. Take your time. Ask around about me. See what your friend thinks. I think you'll find that in the artistic community, I have a lot of sway. Think about it. I'll see you around. Okay, Zira. I will take this into consideration. Thank you. And he takes his leave. And sure enough, over the next few weeks, you do see him around. Now that you know to look, you see him at most of the large evening performances. Give me a sense motive check. Okay. 21. Okay. What you see seems to be that what he told you is the truth. His enthusiasm at performances, what seems to draw him is performances that are very emotive. Performances that have a lot of feeling. Things that are just sort of basic don't really seem to speak to him, but performances that are emotive, that is his jam. And when he expressed to you that he is a huge patron of the arts, and you ask around, it's true. It seems as if he is a supporter of many of the local venues, and he has even funded the creation of some. So what he's told you seems to more or less be the truth. Okay. Iria, after one of these very emotive performances, notices that Zira is very taken by it, goes up to him and, and sits down to have a chat and give her answer about the proposal. He glances over at you briefly and then continues to clap. His hands end in these sort of sharp black nails, which are very elegant, but also very intimidating. And he, this performance he enjoyed so much, he's actually standing and clapping. As finally the applause dies down and the set is between performers, he sits back down next to you and crosses his legs and says, Well? Uh, I mean, I've taken some time to consider and I did ask around and everyone has like really good things to say about you. So I think I will take you up on that. He wraps an arm around your shoulder and sort of gives it a squeeze. 
You and I, Iria, we're going to have fun. This is Dre Silvertooth, your GM, and thank you for listening to episode 23. Yeah, that feels good. 23. Episode 23 of Bad Heroes, part three of the Return to Vire interlude. Hey, everybody, we are back from hiatus. Did you miss us? I know you did. Don't be coy. I am excited to hit the ground running with this episode because I love the solo scenes and character development is absolutely my jam. But... If you are hungrily awaiting more battle or just group shenanigans, don't worry. We are going to get the band back together next episode, and then it is back into the fray. Today, we are excited to share content from our new friends, Transplaner RPG. But first, it is time for the credits for this episode. Smoldering, Cobweb Morning, Imminence, Global Warming, Great Expectations, and Seeker by Kai Angle are all in this episode. Hey, Kai Angle. We love you. I'm pretty sure you don't listen to this nerdy podcast, and I respect that, but I still love you. <laughs> uh, also in this episode, we have When You Leave by Sergei Cheromisyanov, Darkest Child by Kevin McLeod, and a totally cool musical riff by our very own Coolness. You can find that between Tonrir's scene and Iria's scene. And hey, Coolness, man, I'm going to need you to quit being so talented because you're making everybody else look bad, okay? Oh, and as always, our theme is Solve the Damn Mystery by Jesse Spillane. If you use social media, please come find us. We can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Bad Heroes Cast. Our website is badheroescast.com, and our Patreon, if you want to support us and our work, can be found at patreon.com slash badheroes. Okay, now, I am very excited to present to you a trailer for Transplaner RPG. Blessed be the dull, for they have no mind to doubt. Blessed be the cruel, for they have no heart to vow. Blessed be the weak, for they have no teeth to gouge. Blessed be the empty, for we have no soul to shroud. When a paroxysm of magical disasters disappears the stars and vanishes the gods, four strangers must overcome their differences and their traumas to save the world and themselves. Hi, my name is Connie, and I am the GM and executive producer behind Transplaner RPG, an all-trans, POC-led, 100% homebrew actual play campaign set in the non-colonial, anti-orientalist world of Endake. New episodes stream every other Saturday at 3pm Central on Twitch at Transplaner RPG. Past VODs are available on YouTube at Transplaner RPG, as is a written, succinct, yet detailed recap document. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Transplaner RPG. Thank you. Okay, so that was forkin' awesome. They are a bi-weekly stream, so if you are itching for some story between Bad Heroes episodes... Well, my friends, I know just where to send you. So go, get that story, and tell them we sent you. I think that is it. I will get you back into it. I believe our next episode comes out on September 16th. I will see you then. 
And sure enough, over the rest of this month, Zira invites you regularly out to performances, performances that you didn't even know about. It seems that in addition to this open, visible art scene, there is also sort of an underground art scene. And he invites you out to all of these performances you would never have been able to attend. And if you go, if you choose to go, you go at his side. How many of these do you think you go to? Oh, I think she goes to as many as he invites her to. Okay. He invites you out quite a bit. And I think you see just truly moving art. And... This is multi-layered, right? Because not only do you see truly moving art because the artists are so powerful, you also learn a lot, not only about how to be a better performer through watching these amazing performances, but also about the world. There is one venue, one underground venue, and I do literally mean underground. And you notice that in the public venues, just as in the other walks of life in the capital city, no one speaks ill of the throne. Mm. No one speaks ill of hell. But in this underground venue, people do. Mm. And you get the impression that there is some kind of enchantment that prevents it from being watched. And I think through attending those underground events, spoken word, more dancing, plays. There are even plays that feature the Queen of Vire as one of the characters, which you know would never be allowed in more public venues. You learn a lot more about the world and about Vire in particular. And so I think you attend all these performances. Do you perform more? I think she would, yeah. I think in like the smaller underground venues, I think she would perform a little bit here and there. Okay. What are some of the subjects that you perform about, broadly speaking? I think she does some, like, just hang drum performances and also some spoken word about her village and her family. And also she'll do some spoken word on her, like, confusion and intrigue in fire. Interesting. I think you do these performances. They're well-received. Zira is very supportive of these performances. He also offers to hook you up with a mentor, if that's something you want. I don't know if it is. Yeah, I think Iria would be very interested in that. He pairs you up with other people who do spoken word. I think if you go to something underground and you see a performer that like really vibes with you, I think it's like a pretty cool moment the first time that you guys finish watching a show and there's this woman doing this really powerful spoken word and Zira asks if you like it and you say you love it and he says, hang on <laughs> and introduces you. And makes plans for you guys to spend time together so that she can critique your spoken word and help you improve it. I think that that happens several different times. You do this and you spend a lot of time in these venues during this break. And I think you learn so much, Iria. And I think that that explains a lot of the ways that you mechanically grow during this time. Hmm. Why don't you run me down really quick through your level up? Uh, yeah between the Forgotten Court and the next sort of adventure, uh, all the players are going to level up two levels. So they're going from level three to level five. Aliska, would you run me briefly through like what spells you pick up on your way to level five and sort of like your biggest stat boosts and we'll sort of contextualize it in the world. Now that she's at level five, she gets to pick three level two spells and she can use them three times throughout the day. First one is Cure Moderate Wounds. 
Very practical. Yes. Yeah. She also chose Gallant Inspiration, which helps someone that she helps with a failed attack roll or a failed skill check. And she... Nice. That's useful. Yeah. And she adds like plus 2d4 bonus. Perfect. The third one is Steel Breath. And... Basically, you pull the breath from a creature's lungs and you damage them. They are not able to speak or cast spells that have a verbal component. And they have to do a saving throw. And if they fail the saving throw, they get 2d6 points of damage. Nice. I really feel like these spells really enhance your combat utility, truly. I think these spells make you able to be more effective in combat. Low-level bards are definitely not known for their combat utility. (laughs) That changes now, so that's pretty great. So I also, I revamped Iria because when I originally created the character, I used a generator that, it was not very intuitive, so I think a lot of her, like, skill checks and stuff were not accurate. Mm -hmm. So with that, there's a few spells that she wasn't able to have that she did originally. Uh So I replaced those. Do you want me to go over those? Yeah, go for it. So one of them is level one spell saving finale, and that I would use that on someone so they could re-roll a failed saving throw. Oh, that's great. That's helpful. Yeah. Great. And then the other one is called mending, and it repairs damaged objects, restoring it 1d4 hit points. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, these are nice. These all have really nice utility. So for your main stats, your strength, dex, constitution, int, wisdom, charisma, what did you buff between the Forgotten Court and now? Wisdom, because I think Iria learned a lot from all of the mistakes that she made. (laughs) (laughs) The many, many mistakes. What was your wisdom modifier previously? It was minus two. So like when you walked up to an open casket in a vampire castle and got bit, that was just like, you're just like playing the stats, basically. Yeah. And what is it now? It's plus two now. Heck yeah. So now you will walk away from open vampire caskets, maybe. Let's hope. (laughs) We'll see. And then generally speaking, tell me really briefly about how your skills enhanced. So all of her knowledge skills enhanced because she always gets a half point bonus for each level that she levels up. So she got additional one point towards all knowledge. Nice. She also has a trait called Friend in Every Town, and that gives her a plus one trait bonus on local knowledge and diplomacy checks. Which, like, fits in so nicely with what you're doing. Like, you are basically making all the friends in town Mm -hmm. and learning all this local lore and knowledge about Vire and, like, all of that stuff. I love this because it makes sense. Contextualized in what you're doing, this makes perfect sense. Of course you now know about knowledge, and of course you've become more diplomatic. Mm-hmm. And then because you possess bardic knowledge, you get to add those half of your class levels to knowledge skill checks. And also like you can make all knowledge skill checks untrained, mm-hmm. which I know we've talked about, but like, I love that. I think that is one of the coolest traits of bards. You know, a little bit of everything, not because you've ever been trained in it, just because like you have soaked up the knowledge and culture of the world around you. And I think that that fits in super well with what you've done, this interlude. Mm-hmm. It's definitely right. And that's why I think she spent so much time in the venues and watching performers and getting to know people. And she's just learning all of these different things, you know, things outside of Vire and and people's interests and stuff like that. So nice. You grow so much during this break because, Iria, you are 
from a small village, a very secluded village, which has a very beautiful magic about it. I think you miss it very much. Yeah? Mm, yes. But being in the capital city of Vyro, you are in a cultural hub of the world. It would be like getting to go to New York City and stay there for a month without paying any rent, without having to work, and being able to go to every show you go to for free. Yeah, she's into it. <laughs> and also meet the best performers and work with them privately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like the best time of your life. You grow so much during this month. Like artistically, especially, I think you grow so much. And that's, that's very cool. And I think she, it, it also goes to her growth as a person too, where I think she was very dependent on certain things that she, now that that's not part of her life at this moment, she realizes that she doesn't need to be so dependent on that. Like what? Like love, like mm. being with someone. That's very cool. You spend a lot of time with Danny and Farah and Zira, but none of them are loves, right? None of these people are romantic relationships, but I think I think you still probably find them to be pretty fulfilling, yeah? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that personal growth is definitely fulfilling. So I think after your last performance that you do in the capital city of Vire, before you guys are called on by the queen, is it like an underground performance or is it in one of those outdoor venues? I think it's an underground performance. I think she's drawn to those because they're much more real. Cool. So it's at one of these like really real underground performances, which like those performances are less well attended, right? Because only certain people know that they exist. Right. But the people who attend them are really, really plugged into sort of the art scene. So it's, it is not very many people, but it is the right people. And I think after you do this performance, give me another performance check. It's 20. Okay, it's good. So you do this performance and you get a big round of applause. And I think when you reconvene with Zira after, in a private box far away from the crowd, he looks really pleased. And he curls one of his great black angel wings forward with a whoosh that, that kind of makes your fur tickle and says, I have a gift for you. There is power in the wings of a fury. Allow me to share a little of that power with you, Iria. And you watch as he plucks a long, perfect feather from the length of his wing and holds it in his hand. And up close, you can see that it is this beautiful, reflective black, almost opalescent. He flicks a drop of blood from the quill and then waves his hands around it. And when he holds the feather out to you, it's dangling from an earring. I think Iria takes it and just kind of like looks at it and takes it in and kind of feels the importance of it. And she puts it in her other ear. She has the earring that she got from the queen and she puts this in her other ear that hasn't had anything. So on one ear, you have the token that the queen gave you, which has the symbol of the House of Fane. And now in your other ear, you have a token from Zira, your patron. Mm -hmm. And that earring, it gives plus one on all performance checks, all types. <gasps> what? Nice. Very cool. And I think that is the last time you see Zira, before you are summoned once more before the queen, and he is standing at her side.
So it is Gideon Day, <laughs> and I am here with Kaz. How you doing, Kaz? I'm great. Yeah? How are you? Well, it's 2020, so I'm fine. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm losing my voice in a super real way, so you're just going to kind of get, like, tatters of me. So I think maybe for the purpose of this scene, everyone in Vire except Gideon is really sick. <laughs> maybe Gideon should stay home. You know, she really should. I think everyone in Vire should stay home, but but they're not. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> so we are going to explore what Gideon does in the next month before the next hunt and how she levels up. Your accommodations and your necessities are all covered by the crown. And you have, what are you doing? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like you're gently beatboxing into the mic. I was adjusting my mic stand. <laughs> so your accommodations and your necessities are covered by the crown, and you have been invited by Safira to enjoy the capital city in whatever way you see fit. And also, naturally, you have been forbidden from leaving. Cool. It's a cool thing. I feel definitely like a guest and not a prisoner. Good. Very good. <laughs> so, guest Gideon... How do you want to spend your time? It's going to be about a month before the next hunt. So we're going to kind of get in here together and figure out what happens in this month. Mm, okay. You know what Gideon's going to do? Fucking chill. She's going to go fucking book shopping. Surprise. <laughs> That's what she's always wanted. Okay. So so you had a very eventful arrival back in Vire. You showed up, the queen was herself, you had like two hit points, you were on the edge of death, you went to the library with Tonrer and found out some stuff that was really rough. And that was the last time we checked in. How long after that is it before you're in a bookstore? At some point, you got hit points back. Oh, great. Yeah, she would probably have taken a week, if not two, to like just recover from the reeling discovery that she had. Let's say a week. Let's do a week. So okay. then you have three weeks to do. Yeah. So you recover for a week, which adds up. You take about that much time to physically recover from the constitution damage you've taken. And you still don't look 100%, truly. And then you're also recovering emotionally. Yeah, she's recovering emotionally. She's just kind of trying to wrap her head around the discovery of her mother has lied to her for her entire life. And she's just kind of trying to figure out who in her family she can trust. Okay. I think that you are in a bookstore right now. And this is probably like a week in. Do you think that she would go someplace quiet? Yeah, she would look for like, she doesn't want the touristy spot. She doesn't want really well trafficked places. She wants those little nook in the wall bookstores that she thinks that she'll be able to find more of the rare texts that she's looking for. And just to paint the picture, she's in this bookstore. She's probably like, carrying a stack of books that's way too much <laughs> mm -hmm. for her. She can't possibly seem to get enough. I think I have the perfect place in mind. So you are in one of the outer districts of the capital. This district is a little more wild. There is a forest that runs through half of it, and it creeps into the buildings. But this district, it's also more quiet, less populated, and not very well trafficked. So I think that there is a bookshop here that you have come to visit frequently. It is a shop of rare and antique books. It is a little run-down, hole-in-the-wall type of place. 
with vines growing through broken windows and climbing along some of the bookcases. But it's it's still beautiful, it really is, despite sort of the ruin. There is dust hanging in the sunbeams that slant through what remains of some stained glass high up on the walls. And I think over time you have learned that this building, like many of the buildings in this district, was once a chapel that belonged to a sect of good clerics who were driven out during Queen Aurelia's reign. There is a former grandeur here in this building that I think speaks to you and probably feels familiar. Um, how many times have you been here? Um, if she took a week to recover and it's only been a week, she's probably only been there maybe two times. Okay. It's quiet. It's always quiet in this bookstore. You have the impression that this bookstore has rare and interesting books, but you have to know where to look. And I don't think for you that's a problem. Right now, the only other person in this store with you is the owner. And the owner speaks sign language, but understands common. Does Gideon speak any sign language? It's not one of her preset languages that she knows, but I don't see why she wouldn't have been able to learn it. Yeah, I I feel like maybe you know like a little. Like you're probably not like super fluent, but you probably know enough that you've been able to build like a good rapport. And it's very quiet there. And the owner tends to leave you alone and let you read as much as you want. You don't even necessarily have to buy anything. Tell me again, you're, you have like a huge stack of books. Yeah, so if she's standing there, she's probably still browsing the stacks, but the stack of books is almost up halfway to her face to where she can just barely peek over the stack to look at the shelves and see if there's anything else she wants to grab. Okay. You are interrupted by somebody clearing their throat directly behind you. Gideon does nothing. She just keeps looking at the books. <laughs> <laughs> she probably would have just glanced to make sure it wasn't the shop owner. She would have glanced towards, like, where the shop owner was. So she'd be like, oh, it's not him. Whatever. <laughs> okay. And then kept browsing. You're still browsing, and after a second you hear, hey, bookworm. So Gideon stops recognizing that nickname and turns her whole body, which is to say that basically all that, <laughs> all that the other person can see is Gideon's eyes over the huge stack of books she's carrying. <laughs> you turn around, and there is Amara your sister, and she is dressed in her general's garb and she is grinning ear to ear. And I think before you can even say anything, she is dragging you into an enormous hug. Do you drop all your books? Uh, no, Gideon clings to the books and says, Mara, Mara, the books. <laughs> I <I've> <laughs> Okay, I think you're doing that. And I think she's kind of like rotating around you like a big octopus. And, and you, books and all, are in this big hug. Because Amara's bigger than you, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you are wrapped up in this gigantic hug. And it is sort of a classic Amara hug, which is to say it is such a strong hug that it kind of hurts. And I think the books are like pressing into your rib cage <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but eventually she relinquishes her hold on you and steps back and is kind of holding you by the shoulders and looking down at you past the little books. And she says, there's my little sister. You look, well, I would say different, but you're covered in books, which is sort of the same energy as always. <laughs> if you let her, she starts unstacking the books from in front of your face. Yeah, Gideon's looking after each single one just to make sure that she kind of mentally logs, like I need to remember to pick that one back up. I think Amara makes a neat little stack on a small wooden table that is sort of crammed between the stacks. 
she she helps you set down all your books and she knows how you are. So she helps you stack them in the order you intended. <laughs> and then she takes you by the shoulders and looks at you and she looks at you with so much fondness. Gideon's smiling. She's not a uh, gushy kind of person, but she's smiling. She's happy to see her sister and she just looks at her and says, what are you doing here? I came to see you, of course. How did you... You sent a letter saying you were in the capital. But the capital is so huge. How did you know where I was? She smiles and she holds her arms up and says, Gideon, you would be in a bookstore. You would be in a bookstore just like this. And she points to the stained glass up on the walls. And then she sort of like toes a vine out of the way and says, well, maybe not just like this. This is the seventh bookstore I checked. <laughs> you, you do look different. Gideon, you look like you are a force to be reckoned with. I almost died. <laughs> Here, I have something for you. And she reaches in her backpack and she hands you a package that is wrapped in fine blue paper. Is it like a soft package or is it like a box? like a soft package. Gideon takes it and looks it over and then looks up at Amara and says, it's not a book? <laughs> Open it. Okay, Gideon opens it. You unwrap it and the gift inside is an object that you immediately recognize. It is a one-shouldered cape crafted from silver dragon scales linked together in a cascading scale mail pattern that shimmers in the light. The cape, even in your hands, has a comforting weight to it. And there's a solid silver chain that you know runs diagonally from the shoulder across the chest and back. And you know that this cape is Amara's. She holds it up and she just looks at it and it catches the light and she can see the, the scale shimmering. And then she looks up at Amara and says, you're giving me your old cape? <laughs> Gideon, you are a warrior now, and you should look like one. I want you to take this so you wear the scales of our ancestor. Gideon looks down at it again and then looks up and says, I'm not, I'm not like you. I don't command armies. I don't have any skill to be able to deserve this. I almost died. <laughs> is your family, like, physically affectionate? Is touch a thing or not really? Like, was that hug a rare thing? Amara is very affectionate. Like, Amara loves to hug. Okay. But even though Gideon won't really respond to it, Amara will still do it. Okay. So, like, Amara would wrap Gideon in a bear hug even though Gideon was just standing there awkwardly like, I don't know what to do. Does Gideon like that, or does she wish it would stop? She's kind of indifferent on it. She would tolerate it from Amara more than anybody, because okay. she's her sister. Okay, I think Amara wraps an arm around your shoulder and sort of gives you a squeeze. Gideon, you don't have to command an army to be impressive. You can command yourself, and you have. You're here, you're alive. So she would hold it, try and wrap it around herself, and start trying to do the clasp and 
like hold her hands out afterwards and look at Amara and say, it looks silly, doesn't it? (laughs) It doesn't look like me. Nonsense, Gideon. It looks perfect. And I think she kind of reaches over and straightens it out so that it hangs nicely over one of your shoulders. And sure enough, it does match really well. You are all dark gray and silver, and it falls really elegantly over one of your pointed shoulders. And it, however you feel, however you think you look, you actually look very intimidating. And I think Amara just looks at you really, really fondly. And then her smile kind of breaks a little bit. And she says, Gideon, I've missed you so much. I I hope you're not angry with me. I love you, and we've all missed you terribly. Gideon has been kind of looking over the cape and touching it with her hands and kind of getting used to the feel of it. And at this, when Amara says this, she kind of looks up slightly, just with her eyes, like she doesn't bring her face fully to look at Amara. And she just says, I would never be angry with you, Mara. Please, tell me everything about your adventure. It might be very Gideon to just kind of be like, here, and shove her journal forward. (gasps) That's great. Okay. So you want to do a combination of having Amara read your journal, and then she also, she's going to want to talk to you about it as she's going. Where do you go to talk to Amara? If there's like a woodsy area, like just somewhere that's out in nature, it's very reminiscent of when they were kids. They would just kind of go and walk through the forest together. And Amara would always be, you know, picking up a stray stick and flinging it around like a weapon while Gideon would just cling to her little scraps of paper. as She documented everything that she saw. So she would probably want to do something like that and just walk through the woods. Okay, that that feels extremely right. So you are in a district that is half wild. So you are in the perfect place for a walk in the woods. You two leave the bookstore and you pass under the shadow of several gargoyles lining the edges of the chapel's roof who are taking up the spaces between shattered cherubs. I think you follow a dirt path that leads into the woods that defines this district. It doesn't look like anyone cares for these woods, like the land here has just been left to let nature take its course. And how much do you think you know about this area? Since you've been spending some time here, did you ask anybody? It's a weird place. Like, this is a really weird district. If anything, Gideon might have tried to find some kind of, like, local history book to read up on it. She wouldn't really be the kind of person to ask anybody else. Okay. She would kind of try to learn it on her own. Okay. There's probably some sort of, like, written description of what happened here that is sort of used as a cautionary tale that's probably visible outside. So you know, from what you've read, that this district is the site of an old battlefield where the last good clerics in Vire made a stand and put up a fight for its salvation. So you're walking through these woods, just like you used to do when you were kids. You are almost exact mirror images of, of how you used to be when you were kids. Amara with her weapons on her hip and what used to be a stick but is now a very real weapon and you with books where you used to have tatters and you are walking between these large trees and you see broken and rusted weapons and shields that litter the ground at the feet of tall oaks 
And even some of the trees here themselves have burn scars. And I think you've been walking for a little while and Amara reaches down and plucks a purple and black flower and spins it between her fingers. And she shows it to you. Roll, do you have like a knowledge nature? I do. Roll that. 12 plus 4, 16. Okay. So you know, maybe even just from Amara telling you, this plant is nightshade and it grows on graves. So you know, looking at this plant, that a lot of people died here. Gideon would probably take it all in and just be like, wow, like think to herself, wow, there's a lot of people who must have died here, but it doesn't really impact her one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I think you and Amara kind of share a look at the flower, sort of a meaningful look, and then she drops it. And she busies herself in reading your journal. And I think, is your journal like a full account of everything that's happened? Pretty full account, yeah. It's all of Gideon's thoughts on things and what is currently happening. So it would be written almost like, just arrived in the capital of Ire, hired a cat <laughs> to carry my bags. Mm-hmm. Met an annoying dwarf who dragged us to the castle. Like It would be written like that. So Okay, so that's kind of the energy. So I think she, just like with rapt attention, I think she eventually finds an oak tree to settle down under and read. Mm-hmm. Do you hang out with her while she does that? Yeah, Gideon will just kind of be hanging out, maybe resting her eyes. She's still not 100% obviously physical or mentally. She might sit down on a tree opposite Amara and just close her eyes and wait Is sharing your journal with Amara something you used to do? Is this something she's accustomed to? Previously, she didn't really... Her journal was just filled with notes, tidbits of uh, books that she had read. She would detail, you know, if she was reading a book on trees, she'd be like... (laughs) (laughs) I learned some stuff about trees. All of her quote-unquote journaling wasn't so much to do with her own personal experiences as much as it was to do with what she was learning. A sidebar, Tonrir would like to read your tree book, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that makes sense. So this is the first thing that she's read that you've written about your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. The first entry in that journal would probably be something along the lines of, I have to leave all my precious books behind. My family is sending me away. Okay. I think when she sees that entry, she, she looks upset. And I think she does look upset for a time because I think your first couple entries are very like, oh, no, (laughs) I've been sent away from my home. I went to the capital city of Vire. Oh, God, why there? I've been kidnapped. Uh Uh-oh, now I've met the queen. (laughs) She's the worst. Oh, no, now I'm doing this. Like, I think she's (laughs) cringing her way through it all. (laughs) I think Amara is very expressive. And I think just watching her face and listening to what she says, you can tell where she is in this story. This is a perfect Venn diagram of the things that Amara loves. Because in one circle is Gideon, and then in the other circle is adventure and battle. (laughs) So this journal is exactly in the middle of her two favorite things. So she is just like reading this with rapt attention. And she gets to the end of the fight with Oberon. And I think she has to stop and talk to you about it. I don't know if you journaled what you found in the library or not. Probably wherever Amara stopped was where the journal kind of started getting unreadable. Mm. because Gideon would start writing something and then scratch it out and start writing again and scratch it out. Like, she doesn't know how to put Mm -hmm. that discovery to paper. Okay. It's very sad. Okay, so she reads through the fight with Oberon and sort of the beginning of the return. She can't interpret anything after that, so she closes the journal very lovingly and hands it gently back to you. And she says, Gideon, I've never even seen a vampire. 
That is incredible. I mean, it sounded terrifying and terrible. But if we're being completely honest, I'm a tiny bit jealous. They're not that great. (laughs) I think she stands up and brushes herself off and helps you up so you guys can continue walking. What an incredible fight! The subterfuge breaking out of his mind control to deliver the final blow. That is a tale you will be telling to a captivated audience at home, Gideon. That is just incredible. I I don't necessarily think that this is something I'm going to be sharing with anybody at home. Why? Well, for one, you know I've never been the type to create a fuss or create a production. If people would like to hear about it, you can relay the story to them, or you can take this journal back with you, and I'll start another. But I'm... I'm not comfortable going home. I think you and Amara walk in sort of a solemn silence for a while. I think when you were little kids and you were walking in the woods, Amara would reach down sometimes and and hold your hand. And I think she tries to do that now. Do you let her? She does for now, yeah. Gideon, I'm sorry that you had to leave. I am. But you have to come home. That's when Gideon stops walking and pulls her hand away and looks up at Amara and says, Even if I could leave this place, which I can't, and she shows Amara the pendant, you read the journal. I am not... I am not doing this of my own choice. I I don't have a say in this. But even if I did... I don't know who I can trust anymore in Silver Scale. Gideon, Gideon, I'm sorry that you had to leave, but we're still your family. We still love you. We still want you to come home. No, Amara, you don't understand. You you don't understand the lies that we've both been told. She stops walking. She watches you very carefully. And I think she listens with rapt attention to anything you tell her. Do you recount everything to her? Yeah, so she's going to recount what happened in that basement with Tonrir. So in summary, what you discovered with Tonrir was that though you were told that there were many diplomatic meetings with Vire and that your family joined Vire willingly, you discovered that that was not true and that your original home, the original Silver Scale, was destroyed for the expansion of Vire. So... You share all that information with Amara, right? Mm Mm-hmm. She's maintaining her composure, but she's angry. Amara could easily tell that she's upset, she's angry, she's frustrated. I think any anger that you feel, you see reflected in Amara's face. Roll sense motive. Give me a sense motive check. And you can actually roll it twice and take the better number. (laughs) Okay, because that was bad. Because this is your sister. That's not great either. Oh, boy. Hang on, let me look at my... <laughs> She's too upset to notice. Oh, minus one because of wisdom. So it's a six. <laughs> Honestly, this is like a check of five <laughs> is how easy this is. Because you have known Amara your entire life. You can read her face 
better than you could read your own face. You have looked at her more than you have ever looked at yourself. And when you look at Amara right now, you know with absolute certainty that everything you are telling her is news. That she did not know any of this. And she is just as furious as you are. I think when you found out this information, you were sort of overcome with grief. Grief looks different for different people. And I think for Amara, grief is rage. And I think Amara also knows you. Even better than she knows herself. And when you tell her this, she knows without a doubt that you are telling her the truth. I think you guys are in a very secluded place. And I think the ground beneath Amara's feet begins to turn to ice. Do I notice this? Uh, roll a perception. 18. Yeah, you notice. Okay. Hang on. How are you, how are you doing that? Are you controlling that? What? She has some angry tears in her eyes and she wipes them away and the ice slowly recedes. <sighs> this is our bloodline. It's manifested blood. We can use the cold to damage our enemies. It will not damage us. The cold is in our veins. You can't hurt a fish with water. I didn't know what was happening. I, I was in the library with Tonrir and... I just remember being so upset and so angry, and then everything was cold. I think if you let her, she takes your hand again. Do you let her now? Yeah. She kind of walks close to you, and I think you walk in silence for a while. However you felt before, whatever you thought was happening now, I think in this moment, you probably do feel like you and Amara are in this together. And eventually... Seemingly out of nowhere, Amara stops and she laughs. And it's not a happy laugh. It's more like, like a release of something. She looks at you and she says, Don't get me wrong, I'm livid and I will have Mother's hide for lying to us. But Gideon, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you remember, but the Queen of Vire, not, not this one, but the one before the fall, Aurelia, she visited several times when we lived in the old city. I remember her. And every time when she left, father would rage around the place for days, poring over maps and speaking with his advisors in hushed tones. And at night, he would sit you and I down and tell us the virtues of Silverscale, the strength of the Greyfrost line, with so much passion, because he wanted us to know why Silverscale was and always should be ours. And that, that didn't line up with what we were told after his passing, after the fall. Dark elves destroying our city from below, why? There was no reason. Tactically, it makes no sense. And I think she grabs you by the shoulders and she turns you, so you are looking each other dead in the eye. Do you let that happen? Yeah. Gideon, I think that we were told Vyre came to our rescue against unknown assailants so we wouldn't rebel. So we wouldn't fight to take back our home. We couldn't take it back if we even wanted to. Look at Vyre. Look at what 
we've become a part of. I think that you and Amara look around at this forest that was a battlefield. And there are broken swords and broken shields and flowers growing over graves of people with good intentions. And I think you guys let that sit for a minute. But you can feel Amara's fingers digging into your shoulders, and she says, No. No. Gideon, Silverscale is ours. It is our birthright. You know it is. And I think as she starts to say that, you hear a very loud sound. You hear the beating of wings. And suddenly, a great stone gargoyle lands directly in front of you and says, Hello, please state your names. Gideon just looks to Amara. I think Amara straightens up and her main weapon is a staff, yeah? Yeah. Amara straightens up and steps a little bit in front of you and taps her staff on the ground and a small circle of ice forms at the base of the staff. Amara's a general, isn't she? Yes. She would introduce herself in a way that pretty much demands respect. General Amara of the Greyfrost clan. She'll kind of peek out from behind Amara and just go, <laughs> and Gideon. Thank you. You have been detected speaking against the throne and spreading false information. As this is the first violation on record for both of you, there shall be no consequence. Outsiders to the capital receive one warning. Please be advised there will not be a second warning. Have a lovely day. <laughs> and with that, the gargoyle flaps its great stone wings and disappears back to perch on another building. Gideon just looks to Amara to see what her reaction is going to be. Because Gideon's not, she didn't necessarily know that this was going to happen, but it's not surprising anymore. <laughs> I think Amara looks furious, and I think it takes her a minute to get her composure back together because Amara is not the kind of person who is accustomed to being told to shut up. <laughs> so I think it takes Amara a good couple minutes to get herself together. Gideon, where are you staying? I think Gideon would have gone to a nicer... Inn? Inn, or yeah, one of the nicest ones that she could find because she was done after having almost died and having to stay cramped with four other people in Danny's hut. <laughs> she was like, no, I need my own room. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, and however you feel about Danny, you're also like a very tall elf who is used to the finer things in life. Yeah, so she would get a nice, like a nice-ass room okay. with a huge bathtub. Okay. Amara is thinking very hard, and she asks if you guys can go to wherever you're staying. Do you take her there? Gideon looks at her and pats the pendant in her pocket and says, Yes, sister, of course, we can go back to where I'm staying, but it might do you well to watch that sharp tongue of yours. I think she <laughs> looks pissed, but she goes with you back to where you're staying. And is it is it like a like a suite, like a really big room that you're staying in? It's like stupid big. Okay. <laughs> The queen will pay for that. Like, you basically have been given permission to do whatever the fuck. Since she was given permission to, like, use the hospitality of the capital, 
she got herself literally the most lavish suite that she could almost as like a, like, even though she knows it won't be any type of loss to the queen, it was her (laughs) own way of kind of being like, yeah, screw you. Fuck you. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. This is ridiculous, but I just, if that's your mindset, I think when you checked into this inn where every room is desperately expensive and you basically showed the symbol of the House of Fane to pay, they said, how many rooms do you want? How did you answer? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Gideon would have said all of them. (laughs) Okay, so there is an inn and the only person staying in it is you. (laughs) What's the name of this inn, do you think? Um... The Sparkling Waters Inn or something (laughs) completely ridiculous like that. Okay, I like that. Okay, so Gideon, you have full reign of the Sparkling Waters Inn. And you take Amar there to your top room. And I I think she notices that nobody else is there. (laughs) And that the innkeeper knows you by name and asks if you want lunch sent up to your room for you and your guest. Yeah, Gideon continues walking past the person at the front desk and waves her hand at his request and says, yes, go ahead and send it up. (laughs) Okay. She's very much acting like her bloodline and just walking around like she owns this place because for now she does. Perfect. Okay. Is your room on the top floor? Did you pick the highest room? Yeah, she would have taken the the penthouse or whatever is an inn (laughs) at an inn. (laughs) Okay. So when you get up there... I think there's some quiet. I think there's a long period where Amara is kind of trying to process and also trying to figure out how to continue talking with you. And if you're okay with it, I think she just like walks in and like very sisterly just like flops down on your bed. Yep. Amara sits up eventually and hits you directly in the back of the head with a pillow. Gideon spins around and she just looks at Amara with a very cold look. So both you and Amara know the cantrip message where you can whisper messages and receive replies. Now, this seems like a thing that siblings would learn together. Yeah. We have to send a message home. I can get it to them, but it has to be short. And I think you guys compose a letter together, something very short because she is going to send it on a spell. It can only be 25 words. So let's you and me together come up with a 25-word message that Gideon and Amara will send home. The only thing I would write would be from Gideon's point of view. Okay, let's do one from each. So when you guys have your messages ready, when you have written them down, what Amara does is she cracks open a window and leans her head out and she waits for the wind. And when a breeze comes by that's headed north, she casts the spell Whispering Wind. She whispers 25 words or less into the wind that cannot be detected until they reach their destination and will only be played once. So, go ahead and tell me what your message is, and then I will share Amara's. You sent me away to experience the world. I have done so and I have learned of your deceit. You have lost my trust. Gideon. We know about the fall. You were right to fear our rage. This is not over. Amara. 
It takes a long time for these messages to go and to come because they have to move on the wind. And your home is very far. Mm -hmm. So I think Amara stays with you overnight and into the next day, if that's okay with you. Yeah. She stays in this room waiting for the return message because, again, it will only be played once. It's like midday the next day. What are you doing when it comes? Gideon's probably just reading. Amara is on your bed with her legs kicked up. She just being like an absolute gremlin. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's being a total gremlin, and she's like (laughs) twirling a dagger. Mm -hmm. And finally, finally, the wind comes into your room through your open window and whispers a reply. It's in your mother's voice. Please understand. I fear war. You should too. Sebastian was proud. It killed him. I love you both. Please be safe in Vyre's cursed capital. I think Gideon, without even realizing it, there's kind of just like the cold fog billowing out from around her. There's a pause where Amara is thinking, and I think eventually she casts message again to whisper to you. And it's it's so much like when you were kids that you guys are sitting in the same room using magic to whisper to each other. Only now it is much more serious. And she whispers... You are tied here until you complete the job. But not all is lost. You have access to the secrets of the capital, to the queen herself, in a way that is otherwise impossible. Gideon, if she wants to underestimate you, if she thinks you are a pawn, let her. When we are ready, when it is time, she will be sorry. Silver Scale is our birthright, and this is not over. But for now, sister, we prepare you for battle. I think Gideon just looks up at her and smiles. So, if Gideon goes along with that, I think that is Amara's intent. I think Amara intends to stay with you until you go out on your next hunt and to train with you in every way she knows how. So you are as strong as you can possibly be. Is Gideon on board with that? Yeah. Do you make Amara stay in her own suite? Because she's a goblin. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gideon's used to it. Okay. Unfortunately. <laughs> so okay. Boots on the bed and everything. Yeah. She invites Amara to take her pick of any of the suites, but she doesn't push for her to leave or anything. Okay. I think Amara stays at the one right next to yours, so you can have some privacy. But, I mean, I think if it's up to Amara, you guys spend most of your time together, except when you are reading, which she knows you want to do, so she gives you space to do that. So there's two more things I want to do. I want to do just some really quick peeks into scenes that happen between Amara and Gideon as they are training specific skills. And then I want to just do a quick rundown of your mechanics and how your mechanics change. So generally speaking... You train with Amara, and you also learn from reading, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of general stuff do you learn from reading as opposed to from Amara, and what do you learn from Amara? She might learn the bloodline thing. She learns a little bit more about how to harness that and actually control it compared to just 
it happening when she's at a heightened state of emotion. Okay. Elemental stuff with Amara then. Yeah, so elemental stuff with Amara. There is going to be spells that she's learning that are based in necromancy. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Yeah, so she's... Hey, hey, hold on. Wait. Yikes. Okay, carry on. <laughs> I've played Divinity with you. I know what that means. <laughs> she won't Ugh. be summoning any body blobs, though. So I hate when you do that. I would give anything to make you stop doing that in our game. <laughs> so you learn some necromancy, and it would make sense, honestly, if you got books in necromancy from that bookstore. Yeah, um, because that bookstore is kind of like a niche little place. So she already knew one from before, and she had that massive Greyfrost library that she had access to. But even in that massive library, she had only ever found one, like, really tattered book that it was not a well-taken-care-of book, but she was able to read what she could from it, and she was able to learn a little bit about necromancy before her mother confiscated the book from her and had it destroyed. Mm. And that's where she learned Touch of Fatigue from, because that's channeling negative energy. And that's what you use on Thalia. That's what I try to use on Thalia. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think anybody noticed that it was necromancy, honestly, at the time. I think that kind of went over everybody's head. Yeah, I think it's a very low-level kind of, she was just barely able to glean the knowledge from that book to be able to learn how to do this. And it, it can kind of go a little unnoticed. Okay. But being in the capital of Vire, being surrounded by people like, you know, Vesper and seeing necromancy uh, done at a larger scale at a much more advanced level, she would continue to explore that. And particularly now, because she knows that it is something her mother was very much against, oh, no. feeling angry about that, feeling the rage of her, her mother having lied to her, she's going to delve into it even more to just kind of get her little version of revenge. Man, Gideon's sticking it to everybody, this solo scene, huh? Gideon may. Yeah, that, I mean, hey. That's fair. <laughs> okay, so so you're teaching yourself necromancy. Mm -hmm. Necromancy is, I think, illegal in many parts of the world, not in Vire. In Vire, necromancy is like everything else. It is allowed as long as you don't become a threat to public safety. If you raise an undead army and start marching through the capital and just like blowing up shops and killing people, then you're going to get into trouble. But that's not because it's necromancy. It's because you're being a problem. <laughs> But if you want to learn necromancy, of course you can. And I think that's very accessible. I think the first time you cast a necromancy spell in front of Amara, she immediately asks where you learned it and points out that your mom is going to hate that. Yeah. She would probably explain to Amara that she's doing this because it's in line with the element of cold, of ice. She would kind of comfort Amara by saying... I don't have any intention of raising the dead of... Thank, thank God. <laughs> she, would, she would explain to Amara, like, you know, I, I don't have any intention of raising the dead. I know that the dead should stay dead. But there are access to elemental spells that I've, I have not seen before. And I think they could be very beneficial. I think she understands that because Amara's own work... In sorcery, and, you know, sorcery, of course, is magic that is based in your bloodline. Mm -hmm. Unlike wizards or clerics, which, like, make deals with gods or get their power through study, your guys' power is in your blood. It is hereditary. You all have it. 
And so she knows many of the same spells you do, but she also stopped learning magic. And I think that was one of the reasons is because many ice elemental magic starts tiptoeing into necromancy. And I think at home, Amara couldn't, but also didn't want to learn that kind of magic, which is why she specced what would be her later levels into fighting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think she understands the limitation of sticking to purely elemental magic. So you learn some necromancy on your own. Let's talk about what you learn from Amara. Okay. Icicle dagger is one that she would have learned from Amara. Okay. That's cool. Let's do like a super baby scene of that. Okay. So I think that they would have taken one of the rooms and shoved all the furniture aside to be able to (laughs) spar in there. So so one of the rooms has just become like a curse room where all the furniture (laughs) is is turned to ice. It's broken and like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, Safira, you're going to have to replace this whole inn when I'm done with it, maybe. (laughs) But yeah, so she would be sparring with Amara, and I think that Amara would really be, like, for the most part, Amara is obviously bigger than Gideon and is more capable than Gideon and is more proficient with weapons than Gideon is and just general, in general, is a better fighter because of her years of experience with it. But I think that Gideon, in, in one of the sessions, might have gotten the upper hand Yeah, I I think you pulled one over on her. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, so I think at one point, Gideon was able to cast Spark and ignited, like, (laughs) Amara's wrist guard or something. Oh, her wrist guard, okay. (laughs) Ignites her wrist guard, and Amara might have been distracted or something, and Gideon was able to knock her staff out of her hands and then used her own staff to sweep Amara's legs and trip her. And then held her staff at her face. And with a huge smile, Gideon would look down at her and just be like, you're weaponless. This has big witch fight energy. I love it. (laughs) So she says, you're weaponless. Yield. I am a gray frost, Gideon, and we are always armed. And I think she jumps up from her back straight to her feet. And she summons an icicle dagger just out of nothing into her hand, and is a masterwork dagger made of ice. And Gideon's eyes are very concerned. They are saucers because they're just like, what? How did she? (laughs) Our weapons are in our blood, Gideon. And that's going to be a 19 strength check. Let's do a strength contest because she's got a dagger now. You have a staff. She's going to try to, hey. Gideon's not strong. (laughs) I know this. <laughs> okay. Well, you really got beat a 19. Four. Goodbye, Gideon. <laughs> Goodbye, my sweet Gideon. Goodbye, Gideon. Goodbye. Okay, so what do you think happens? <laughs> I, I think that Gideon would be so taken aback by the fact that Amara jumped back onto her feet and had a weapon and her eyes would be huge and she would be in shock and Amara would bring the icicle dagger down in like a swipe, not to harm Gideon or anything, but just kind of put it towards her. Gideon would try to put up her staff to block it and then Amara would just shove her over. After you've been shoved over, of course, Amara comes over and I think she twirls the icicle dagger in her fingers for a second before it disappears. Gideon's on the floor and looking up like, Like, she's on her back, and she's holding her staff, and she's looking up, and she says, that's not fair. (laughs) Fair is not a thing in fights, bookworm. And I think she holds out a hand to you. 
And Gideon takes it. She helps you up and she says, you can do it too. I'll show you. That's cool. So I think this is a different day. <laughs> so if you're like committed to like trashing this in. <laughs> I mean, it's not like. I think like one day they like come up to clean and they're like, uh, are you going to pay for that? Gideon would just show them the pendant and say, send the bill to her. I think at one point you and Amara have taken like a disaster room and you have stacked a bunch of mattresses up against the wall. And I think that she is having you just like wail on them, just absolutely wail on them. And I think you're practicing with this new icicle dagger. I think you're practicing just like snap dragon fireworks. I think you're just like blasting it to hell. And you're doing a really good job because it's a it's a mattress, right? Like you're not scared <laughs> of a mattress. Amara taps her chin and she says, I think we need to make this harder. And she holds out her staff and she casts Minor Image, which is a figment. She basically is to create kind of a minor illusion that also has sound. And what she does is she makes this pile of mattresses look like a huge spider. Beans. Roll a will saving throw. To try to not believe in this. 18. <laughs> okay. You look at it, you look at that illusion, and then it disappears. She laughs and she claps you on the shoulder. <laughs> and she says, good, but this time, don't fight it. I want you to be afraid. Because in real fights, we are afraid. This time, don't fight it. And she casts it again. And you see that horrible spider that is, in fact, just a pile of mattresses. And it's making these sort of terrifying, incomprehensible clicking noises and moving its legs in a way that you absolutely hate. When the spider first appears, because Gideon is still scared of spiders, right? Mm-hmm. She starts kind of giving into that fear. She sees it, sees how realistic it looks, and she can hear the clicking and she can see all of its legs. <laughs> Too many legs, really. Too many legs. And she gets scared, and she starts manifesting that blood without realizing it, and starts forming around her feet, and that cold fog starts coming off of her as she's trying to regulate her breathing. And that's when she kind of steals herself and closes her eyes, trying to summon the strength to get past this, and she reaches her arm kind of behind her and summons a river whip which is a whip of water. That is awesome. And anything you strike with the whip takes damage and is doused with one pint of water. <laughs> that is some Indiana Jones <laughs> shit, and I'm here for it. Okay. And so she kind of lets out a little bit of a yell as she's working past her fear of spiders and just brings this whip into existence and flicks it right at the spider's eyes. Okay. Roll attack. I'm uncertain how much a pile of mattresses disguised as a spider have in AC, but we'll just sort of wing it. <laughs> My original dex was plus two, so this would be a seven. <laughs> Tell me how this fails. So I think since she's so scared and she's trying to attack even through her fear, she creates this coil of water and she tries to fling it forward right at the spider's eyes. And what ends up happening is she just kind of splashes water on this fake spider mm -hmm. without actually damaging it. Okay. So your whoops just sort of falls into a puddle. Yeah. Amara puts a hand on your shoulder and 
holds out her hand and summons that icicle dagger again. And she looks at you and she says, Again, you can do this. And she takes up a position beside you to charge it with you. And Gideon looks at Amara and then nods slightly and then summons an icicle dagger like Amara taught her. Nice. You guys, in perfect unison, like little bookends, you charge what looks like a horrifying, massive spider in unison. And as you do, Amara lets out a battle cry. And it is deep and guttural, and it comes from her very heart. And she has a feat called Battle Cry that actually gives you both a morale bonus on attack rolls. So, 14. You guys charge this illusion in unison. And I think what you see is your sister beside you just, like, screaming this guttural scream that's probably sending people, like, out on the street below you into just, like, fits of fear because it's very, very terrifying. And I think you guys collide with this illusion, and as both of your daggers slice into it, it disappears. And it is just a mattress. And I think Amara laughs and throws that dagger into the air, and it disappears. And I think she looks at you and she says, Just because the world has forgotten our strength doesn't mean we have. It is up to us to remember. Real quick, give me a quick rundown of your new stats. You have gone from level 3 to level 5. We've talked about a couple of the spells you've learned. Just real quick, give me, like, your new AC, which stats you boosted, that kind of thing. Strength went down because of an error from 0 to minus 1. Dexterity went up from plus 2 to plus 3. Constitution remained the same at plus 0. Intelligence went up plus 3 to plus 4. Wisdom went up. It was minus two and now it's minus one. Okay. And charisma remained the same at plus four. It did go up a base score, but it's still a plus four. Okay. So there was a couple whoopsie doodles that happened on your original character creation that I totally missed. And that happened with everybody. That happened with Iria, Tonra, Gideon, everybody. Yeah. So the things that you intentionally boosted between level three and level five were dexterity, intelligence, and... Charisma. Charisma. Okay. That, I mean, and that makes sense, right? You've been working a little bit on dexterity with Amara, and then you're always working on intelligence by reading. Mm-hmm. And then charisma is your casting modifier. It's sort of the presence of body and mind. Right. And I think working with Amara, that's definitely going up. Amara's very charismatic. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. How'd your like hit points and AC change? My AC went from 14... To 14, it's the same. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good, okay. Because also because I don't know if that cape or anything would provide any additional armor, but... We can work it out later. I think it should. I think we should add a little little something-something. That stayed the same for 14. My hit points went from 17 to 32. That's nice. Yeah. Did you add anything special into, like, skills or any, like, what new feats did you get? That kind of thing. The new feat would be that manifested blood... So being able to surround myself by my element, my claws did get an upgrade at level five. These claws are considered magical weapons for the purpose of overcoming damage reduction. Okay, cool. Uh, Then I got new spells. All right. 
Tell me about these new spells. That's what I think we're all excited about. <laughs> so uh, no new cantrips. Those are all the same. The level one spells, I lost Ear Piercing Scream for Chill Touch, which is a necromancy-based spell. Okay, so you've given up the Ear Piercing Scream. Man, that's so iconic of Gideon, but I guess really that's iconic of, like, young Gideon. Yeah. Startled Gideon, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've given that up because you're not... She's not screaming at everything that moves anymore. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, Chill Touch you, you had before, right? No, I didn't. Oh, you had Touch of Fatigue. Okay. Yeah, Touch of Fatigue was a cantrip. This is a new one. This is Chill Touch. It's a necromancy skill. Oh, boy. And what does it do real quick? Up to five creatures can be touched, and the effect is a touch from your hand which glows with blue energy disrupts the life force of living creatures, which deals 1d6 points of damage to each person. Ow. What it said was when I leveled up, for sorcerers specifically, because I don't learn them and put them into a book like a wizard does, mm-hmm. I am able to exchange one of the spells I know on top of getting a new one. So I exchanged Ear Piercing Scream for Chill Touch, and then the new one I learned was Icicle Dagger with Amara. Okay, that's great. I love that. That makes perfect sense. And then level two spells, I have the River Whip, and then another necromancy one, which is Unshakable Chill. So one creature is afflicted with severe cold as a status. Man, that's cool. Okay. I also have Resist Energy, which is a creature touched. It grants limited protection from whichever one of the five energy types I select. So if like we're going to be fighting something that's fire demon or whatever, I can be like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and cast Resist Energy on Tonrier for fire. <laughs> Bold of you to think you're going to cast it on someone else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like you're going to cast it on yourself and yourself only. But it is very Gideon to be like, here you go, off you pop, right into the battle. I'll be back here. <laughs> Good luck. Have fun in the fire. I'm going to read my book. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, those spells all sound really good. They all make a lot of sense. I am excited and mildly terrified to see how they are applied. <laughs> Same. And I think that's just the correct reaction. <laughs> Late one night, near the end of the month, Amara sprawls in her room at the Sparkling Waters Inn. Her muscles are exhausted, but thoughts of something large and scaled moving beneath the earth, beneath her home, is keeping her from rest. Frustrated, she creeps across the hall into Gideon's room and finds her little sister sitting up at the foot of the bed, deep in meditation, a book open in her lap. Amara closes the book gingerly, frowning at the skull etched into its cover, and curls up at Gideon's side, listening to the sound of her sister's rhythmic breathing, just as she did when they were small. Across the capital, the Arboretum stands peaceful beneath a sea of twinkling stars. Tonrir bids his mentor goodnight, and as he and Rulthuin disappear into the tree line, Silence smiles. He drags a hand over an arm of that druidic statue, its circlet of vines silhouetted in moonlight, and he thinks of home. Hope growing inside him for the first time in a long time. In her cottage, 
surrounded by soft candlelight. Danny mixes chamomile, valerian root, and lavender into a loose leaf tea. Then, with love in her heart, she adds a few rose petals for luck. In a stone laboratory, surrounded by scorch marks and bubbling potions, stand a skeleton, a vampire, and a cat. Farah inhales sharply through another blood draw, and Ivy watches through golden eyes as Vesper adds a drop of cursed blood to 20 different vials. And then finally, finally, one reacts. In the underground theater, which has emptied out after Iria's final grand performance, Zira sits alone in his private box, drumming his nails over the arm of his chair in the dark stillness, until an unassuming orange snake joins him. Zira picks up the small pit viper and watches it slither between his long fingers until its mouth opens and its eyes go white. So, how is the cat? Stronger than she was. Guided, but not implicitly aided. As you've instructed, my queen. Good. I'm sick of throwing disposable pawns at this pet project. Their deaths are a tremendous waste of time and resources. And as that white glow leaves the snake's eyes, plunging Zira back into near-complete darkness... Across the city, in her castle of stone and steel, Sephira sits alone in her bedchambers, and says to no one in particular, I need this to work. I need those fools to succeed. (laughs) 